Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I'm coming to you from Billings, Montana today, and I am welcoming Jeff Johnston. Jeff, where are you from? Cedar Rapids, Iowa, one of the main flyover states. So when people fly from east to west coast, they just wave at us as they fly over. So (laughs) you're on the traffic line, but no stopping there. Well, I tell people, you know, people say, oh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, man, I love potatoes. And I'm like, no, that's Idaho. Well, that's it's, Idaho. A, it's a common, we're, we're corn, we're corn and cows and pigs <laughs> and farmers and no potatoes in Iowa. I'm an Idahoan, so I'm familiar with all the potato jokes. I bet you are. <laughs> well, it's an honor to be on your show. I, I uh, am so excited to continue the conversation that we had the other day when we were talking uh, before the taping today, but so much is going on in, in this mental health uh, space and issue. And I think by the time we get done with the show, maybe we can have some answers for people to, to, to help them get through these tough times. Absolutely. Yes. And it is, it is a challenging time for, for all of us. So, um, so just as an introduction, um, I just wanted to kind of get a picture of how you got into the work that you're doing. You started out in investments. Is that correct? Yeah, 23 out of college, I started uh, my own investment company, um, pretty green and pretty uh, naive. And after a few years, uh, uh, got a partner involved. And then from there, we just organically grew. I never really recruited. I didn't uh, buy any practices. I just added a key staff person. Then we'd add more clients. I'd add another staff person. And so at age 50, uh, we had amassed a little over seven hundred million dollars of assets under management, which is, you know, that gets us bigger than most banks in town. Right. Um, and 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 we were good. We were doing good. I mean, at the, at the time of my life, uh, investments was pretty much all I was really into. Um, you know, maybe a little bit selfishly motivated by money, uh, which we can talk about as my story on wines. Uh, and then on that on that fateful day on October fourth of 2016 at age 50, um, life dealt me a, a curveball. Yeah. Right. And so talk to us about that curveball. What happened? Well, at that particular point in my life, I, again, I was 50 years old, happily married. My wife, Prudence, uh, three boys, Seth, Ian, and Roman. Seth is our oldest. Ro- uh, Ian was the middle child. And then Roman was my youngest. Um, and at that day, Roman was 13. Ian was 15 and Seth was 23. So just a nice young family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from the outside, everything looked pretty good. And, and really it was. Uh, I was uh, a, an alcoholic at the time, a uh, heavy drinker, functional. I never missed work. Um, I never had any criminal, in, you know, incident. I never had any issues with the alcohol from, from an external uh, perspective. Right. Now, internally, obviously, 
didn't sleep well. I was 190 pounds. Um, you know, but I masked it well. I held it well. My wife was the same way. She was an alcoholic as well. And uh on that day, you know, everything changed. And I think a lot of times when we reflect on our lives, you have these points in time where they they define you. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. like where you got you're at that crossroads where you got to decide which road you're gonna take. And on October 4th, 2016, I got the call that every parent dreads. Uh, they had found our oldest son, Seth, uh, at the age of 23, dead in his chair in a hotel room, overdose with heroin laced with fentanyl. Now, the day it happened, you can only imagine what I went through. Uh, you know, I was dropping my son off to a golf tournament, got the call. My first reaction was, Jill, A, I didn't tell Ian anything because I didn't want to impede on his day because he was going right. off to play in a tournament. I didn't think it was fair. It was it was districts. It was a big day for the kids. You know, it was the accumulation of a good season. And I just turned and left. I didn't, I didn't even tell him I loved him. And I think that right there uh, shows the shock that, that hits you when something like right. this happens, because normally I would hug Ian, tell him I loved him. And then I would go to the course and I never, I never missed a tournament. In this case, I just got in my car and thought, how am I going to tell my wife, you know, that our son is, is gone. And you know, it was the worst moment of my life. Um, it felt like a hundred years and felt like a hundred seconds. Mm-hmm. So I drove the five miles home, just dreading having to tell my wife. Came in, she's getting ready to go to watch uh, watch Ian play, and I couldn't talk. My hands are trembling. She knew something terrible happened. I just said, "Seth is dead," and you know. I've never been the same human being since that moment. And, you know, immediately my wife and I reacted by drinking more. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, for the next year, I didn't go to work. I stayed home. I drank. I thought that was, I thought that was how I was going to deal with this was really removing myself from my surroundings. In hindsight, obviously that was a horrendous mistake, but it felt good, you know, having my pain with alcohol. Did you uh, have any indication that he was into drugs, that he was, um, was he addicted or was this a one-off kind of experience for him? That's a great question because right now the trend is these one-off situations. We're having, you know, 42% of of the pills on the market are counterfeit and most of them have enough fentanyl that could potentially kill a human. So we're having kids that never do drugs, never done drugs, have no problems, uh, or at least not major ones that are dying now. So yeah, the, the paradigm has shifted, but when Seth died, yes, he had a long history of substance abuse at the age of 15. He was given Stratera for hyperactivity at 16. He was given Adderall and that really opened the door to, you know, um, especially opioids that and Adderall was abused. He was selling it, you know, mixing mm-hmm. it with alcohol. Okay. And then it was marijuana, you know, just the normal things kids experiment right. with. And then, and then it got a little more drastic when he was 18, we caught him with cocaine. He had, you know, he had the drunk drivings, he had the breaking and enterings, you know, all the patterns that you see of a life unraveling. Right. right. And then, and then you, then he went to prison. He had, he had a stint in prison for a while. And the day he got out, my lawyer called me, Jill and said, Hey, I got great news. You know, um, uh, I got Seth out of prison and I turned to my wife and I said, this, the worst news we could have got because prison gave Seth structure and he was mm-hmm. dead within two months of getting out of prison. Oh my goodness. 
I, you know, this fentanyl crisis to me is um, being under-informed, under-educated on it. I'm watching it unfold in the news and how prolific it is. And and we're recording this earlier than it will be released, but recently the um, the news was um, spring break, a bunch of West yeah. Point cadets yeah. and, um, you know, eight of them um, were either by secondary a gathering or by their mm-hmm. own usage. And it's just, it's just devastating. I just can't imagine. Um, I just can't imagine risking your life for a, for a drug. I'm not wired that way. So I don't mm-hmm. understand it. It just goes to show that, you know, not now the West point kids, I don't know anything about those kids. I don't know if they were at, if they had alcohol substance abuse issues. I don't know if this is the first time they ever popped a pill. I think it's naive to say, Oh, it's the first time these guys tried cocaine. I think that's what every parent's going to say. I think the reality is these people probably, these kids had experimented, you know, and it caught up with them today with fentanyl. You just, you can't experiment with these things today. You know, when you and I were in high school, I I never did drugs, but when it was around, nobody died. You know, we we weren't dying. And now it's today. It just, it it took my life, my wife, my um, son's life instantly. And he never made it out of his chair, you know, and, um, so, yeah, so, so you're right. That, that's a big issue. But what happened afterwards is, is, is the rest of my story that I think is important to put in context. So my wife and I struggled, we drank. And then on December 24th, 2017, Jill, I literally woke up from a hangover, not doing very good emotionally. My wife was really struggling. Her drinking was getting really bad. I woke up and said, enough's enough. I, this is the day, you know, this is the day I draw a line in the sand. I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to be the dad that my boys need. My two, my two boys left the ones I have left. They need a dad. They don't, they don't need a drunk. And I quit and I quit honestly to help my wife because she was just really getting bad. I mean, it was getting drunk twice a day. You know, it was just not, Mm -hmm. it was, it wasn't just social drinking and I quit to support her. And then, um, her battles got worse, uh, a stint in rehab, you know, uh, quite a, quite a few incidences where she was in, we had to take her into the hospital you know, it got to the point where I finally realized, you know what, I can either, I can enable her, I can try what I can to get her to change, or I can just, I can take the two boys, we can move our environments away, I can I can support her the best I, I could possibly do. And that's what I did. So I bought her a house, I bought a house for me and the boys, and, and we we separated. Uh, we never got divorced. Um, I, I tried to, I tried to show the kids that you can still treat somebody that you don't agree with their behavior, but you still can be a good human. You can be a good, compassionate person. And this was the mother of my children. So Mm -hmm. I didn't want to show, I didn't want to be, you know, throwing her to the streets literally and show my boys, that's how you treat somebody in pain. So we tried to take care of her. And ultimately uh, her fate was sealed on June 29th of 2021, where alcohol abuse caught up. And my wife of 21 years, Prudence died at the age of 46. And, you know, is it hard to talk about her and Seth? Yeah, it is. And sometimes like I've cried a lot today already. And, you know, you reach a point where at least for today, I just wonder how many more tears I have left because every time I tell the story, it gets emotional, but there is a silver lining in all this. And this is where I'm trying to get people to understand that I'm not here looking for pity or sympathy. You know, that's, that's not my objective. If, if I want that, I'll buy another dog. You know, (laughs) I, I want, I want compassion I want empathy. I want love. And more importantly, I want strength. I'm looking for strength. 
not yeah. sympathy. So if if I can do this and you walk out of this a better person, Jill, and you get a little bit of, all right, whatever I'm dealing with, I'm better. And your listeners and your followers can say, that ah, sucks for Jeff, but I walked away from this a better person. You know, then, right. then me being vulnerable is it's worth all it, I then. can do. It's all I right. can do at this point. Right. I certainly so- am not in a hurry to join him yet. No, I'm grateful for that. Very grateful for that. Um, so back up a little bit to when you were drinking before Seth um, died. We know that addiction is symptomatic of a deeper issue, a deeper pain. Mm-hmm. Um, was there something behind that drinking that um, kind of promoted that in your life? For me or for him? For you. Great question, Jill. Wow. That's awesome question because I did not grow up in an alcoholic family at all. I've never seen my mom ever. Alcohol never hit the lips of my mother. I never saw her drink alcohol. My dad probably drank a beer a day growing up. Never saw my dad drunk. Um, You know, as my parents had their issues with any marriage, but it wasn't alcohol induced. Um, Now that doesn't mean my dad didn't have a drinking problem. I don't know about you know, a lot of the right. older generation, my dad's nineties, a lot of that generation did a good job hiding things, but my dad's pretty honest. I, I don't, I don't think there was alcohol abuse in my family. I, I didn't, certainly didn't see it. My older two brothers, they probably dabbled in things a little more than they should have, but I, I don't really think alcohol was a part of, uh, my, 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 uh, my nurture, you know, mm-hmm. the part of nature nurture. I, I don't think the nature part, I wasn't exposed to it. I just chose to start. I started drinking at like seventh grade and I was an athlete. I was high strung. I, I have attention deficit, full blown alcohol gave me a rush. It gave me a, it gave me confidence to talk to girls. It gave me, it just gave me something I, I was lacking. So if there was maybe, maybe I had a self-confidence issue that, that, um, that I didn't think I had, but now in hindsight, looking back, maybe, maybe my drinking was a confidence issue. But I went into college, got worse. I had a drunk driving in 90 something. I don't remember what year. Probably should have had more drunk drivings, but that's the one time I got caught. Um, and it just all kind of caught up with me on that fateful day when I woke up and said, I'm done. And um, yeah. I tell you what, it's the greatest decision I've ever made in my life. I, I'm 149 pounds now from like 190. Uh, I eat healthy. I feel good in the morning. Um, I'm not foggy. I'm clear you know, and, and yeah, and it's really been pretty easy for me not to drink. I, I don't, I don't think about it. So well, talk to me about that because, um, recovery can be hard and, mm-hmm. um, for many people is, uh, is a, a formidable an- enemy. Mm-hmm. And so how did you go from that decision on that day to say, I I'm done, I'm not doing mm-hmm. this anymore to living a life sober. What was that process <laughs> like for you? Another great question. You, you have really good questions. Um, I'm, I'm different. I'm, I'm not, the answer I'm going to give you is not what I think, uh, advocates for sobriety want to hear. Um, I'm not, I'm not in recovery. I'm not sober. I'm not an alcoholic. I just choose not to drink today. So at two forty nine on Wednesday, March 16th, talking to Jill Riley, I just choose not to drink. So mm-hmm. I've tricked my dumb brain to believe narratives that normally people don't believe. Like I, I simply, um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to participate in the narratives that I think everyone thinks I should participate in. So it's like, if I say I'm sober, the implication is Jill, that I'm in a battle with something like I'm Mm -hmm. fighting some evil entity. It's me versus them. Nope. I'm not sober. 
because I'm not in a battle. Um, am I in recovery? Well, I don't go backwards very far. I don't, I don't look at my past and, and try to put a label on it. Like I'm, 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 I've evolved. I'm in evolution of my life, but I'm not recovery. Um, you know, was I an alcoholic? I overdrank for many, many years. Uh, but I don't say, I don't believe, and this is just me. I'm going to get pushback on this when I'm on my tour next in 51 days. I don't believe in the idea. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I, I think that's a narrative, a stigma that you can either believe, or you could say, I don't believe. And mm -hmm. a lot of the problems with the industry, with alcohol, uh, recovery and all that is the labels we put on people and, and people just accept them like their law. What, what law is there that says that you have to believe that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, you show me the law that says you have to believe that. Well, once you're in um, a treatment facility, which I have been, I was not there for addiction, but it was a, um, they dealt with um, comorbid um, things. Mm -hmm. So I was there for trauma. So many people were there for addiction, but once you're in a um, institution like that, it does become law. Those kinds of, those kinds of messages, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, you're always in recovery, you're never mm -hmm. recovered. Those, those things are just drilled into you you repeatedly and it does become the the pilings the foundation of of the recovery world so what's your thoughts on that do you, do you think i mean for you did, did it help you to tell you these these narratives if it did then that's awesome then it's good for you well you know for me um for me i was not there for addiction so i'm i'm one of those uh trauma recovery people mm -hmm. that um did not deal with addiction thankfully uh yeah. for me i feel like because my my struggle is with my mental health mm -hmm. i have to say i I will always um, need to be aware of the status of my mental health mm -hmm. and my mental illness, but that doesn't mean that I have to succumb to the narrative that I am always going to be um, sick and downtrodden and, and right. um, you know, just a woe is me. Like you said earlier, that's, that's not how I feel. I feel like I need to be aware. I need to be vigilant um, and I need to be educated and I need to have assistance and all of those things shore up who I am, but it's not my definition. Yeah, I like I like the way you frame that because I think what we're trying to promote for people at the Living Undeterred Project is building a war chest of weapons and tools that you can use to fight against these things that you're struggling with. So for me, my war chest has my podcast I do um, right. to be a guest, you know, meeting you today, I'm adding that relationship to my war chest. And so if I have a situation where I need to reach out to somebody. I'm going to have a hundred people in my war chest. I can reach out to that. I've had really good conversations with that aren't pretentious on right. accolades and status symbol. Uh, maybe it's religion. If you're a religious person, you know, maybe, maybe it's God, maybe it's, maybe it's, um, maybe it's a uh, meditation, maybe it's exercise. Maybe it's, uh, you know, just going to a nice restaurant, you know, you got to have a war chest built. And so I think, I think for mental health, for me, it isn't about trying to um, eradicate certain issues we have. I think it's more of understanding to adapt them into our story, lean into them, not away from them, and then absorb that into the future. So I carry not a burden, 
of a deceased child and a deceased wife, but an honor to continue their legacy. Mm-hmm. So I've reframed it in my mind. And I say my dumb mind because I never made out of own high school. I'm not that, I'm really not that smart, but I know that. And so I don't want to overthink things. And so for me, things that are overthought by a majority of the population to me come easy because I don't overthink them. And I think right. I told one, I told one, one person to one time, I think that's the benefit of having attention deficit, Jill, is really? I don't have the, I don't have the time to sit around and think about things. I just, I just want to get stuff done. Right. So drinking, drinking interfered with my life. So I quit. I Got may drink good. tomorrow. I may drink tomorrow. I, I, I'm not, I don't want to think that far ahead right now. I'm talking to Jill and my, I got Gatorade in my drink here. <laughs> and, and so I'm not drinking alcohol and tomorrow I may not live tomorrow. So why am I going to waste a lot of time about what I'm doing tomorrow? At least when it comes right. to worrying about drinking and I buck heads with people good way, you know, a good way about this issue about, cause I know people are just so dead set on, on, they know the answers to all these things and you know what they do for them. Mm-hmm. but that's the only person you have answers for is you. You don't have answers for anybody else. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's one of the issues we run into this mental health space is there's so many freaking experts out there, <laughs> ex-addicts, ex people in recovery that have the answers for everybody. It's like, I don't have answers. I just tell people how I live my life and hopefully that helps. Um, Sorry, I just had a had a call ring through. Um, oh, you're good. So you... Um, your your mother died shortly after mm-hmm. your wife passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you you made a decision to be better, not bitter? Mm-hmm. And how did you um, come to that decision after so much loss? Yeah, I mean, most times, you know, death like love, I talk about this, doesn't come in the right order. You can meet the the wrong person the first time. You get divorced and you meet the love of your life. It's like does things don't always go in the right order. Well, in my case, I lost death. It was a completely the wrong order. I went 23, 46, 89. You're you're old right. people. I mean, it, who does that? You know, and, and then sprinkle in my 16-year-old cat in between there. But it's like, so for me, for me, death was just kind of given to me as an opportunity to become a better, not bitter person. I'm trying to show my kids there, there's a sentence and I, I really like that. I think if, if, if most people as they go through their day would repeat this sentence every single time that something happens. Okay. And here's, here's the sentence. Here's the question. Do you believe things happen to you or do things happen for you? And so you take any situation, any situation, the worst scenario is death and the worst scenario is death of a child. And you ask yourself Mm -hmm. that question, did Seth's death happen to me or did it happen for me? And how you answer that question frames how you're going to live the rest of your life, in my opinion. And I answered that question, not initially. The correct way for me was four, but initially it was two. I was a victim. Mm -hmm. I drank. I felt sorry for myself. I had huge, massive pity parties in my head all the time, uh, considered, you know, very bad things I wanted to do to myself. Um, and then finally, after I quit drinking, when I got clear of my mind and my body and my soul, I finally realized I need to start looking at everything that happens to me as an opportunity, you know? Now, does that mean I don't feel really bad? Yeah. I've cried four or five times today, hard, um, 
I had this morning, I got up, I just felt that pit in my stomach where I just didn't want to do anything today. Yeah. And I'm like you, I have like five podcasts today. I didn't want to do any of them. I wanted to call yeah. you guys back out, but then something was in me. I felt like either, you know, Seth was pushing me or my wife Prudence was kind of pulling me, um, into, um, you know, into getting it done, but you know, again, and then, so fast forward a little bit, what happened is when my wife passed away, that really changed everything for me. You know, that was kind of my aha moment that, okay, this, this is real, this, this is real. And, and if I don't change my life and get myself really strong, um, I don't want my kids to bury, bury me. Right. I mean, what, what are two kids going to do losing a brother, mom, and a dad, you know, to pretty Absolutely. much all, all things that were preventable. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I died in a plane wreck. I mean, th- this is preventable. It's pre- I used to tell Seth, I said, I said, Seth, you know, we had many good talks. I had a really good relationship with Seth. I go, you know, two things are going to happen. You're going to be either in jail or dead. And I said, the, the sad thing is both of those are preventable, yet they're both very predictable. And I was right. He was in jail three times in prison once, and then he died. And it's like, I don't want to be right. Well, that's kind of what I'm trying to teach people when I, and I go, I hate to say teach, but maybe show people how to live an inspired life in spite of what what life throws at us, you know? And I've kind of, I've got these three tenants down to my living undeterred mindset that I want to be talking about when we go on the tour in 51 days, which I want to certainly spend some time. Definitely. We need to talk about that. Yeah. I'm just curious. How do you find, um, that's not how, what I want to ask, where do you find space to grieve? You're a busy man. You're a motivated man. You have a tour coming up. You have podcasts. Where do you find space in your, in your heart, mind and schedule to grieve? Hmm. It's a good question. Maybe I haven't grieved enough at this point, five years into this, maybe my grieving is still, you know, process. No, it's not, it's not an event. I think I write in my book. That's right. I think I write in my book that grief isn't an event. It's a process. So, um, going back to my kind of my core foundation of living undeterred, it's expectations, preparation, and evolution. And if you think of those three in the order that I present them expectations, you know, have realistic expectations like death, Death happens to all of us. Yet when mm-hmm. it does happen, we're devastated. Well, why? You know, we may not be in the right order. The timing's never when, when is timing of death ever any good? You know, but right. we have this, we have this myth and this fantasy we live that, you know, that's not going to happen. Well, we need to expect really bad things. Preparation's easy. Get yourself ready to go, ready, ready to be handling life. So if I if I'm going to say, okay, Joe, we're going to go climb Mount Everest in a year you and I are going to go climb Mount Everest. You're not just going to wait two days before and then start running <laughs> on your elliptical, right? You're going to say, first of all, no, I'm not. And then you're going to say, right. well, you, yeah, right. So but we're going to train, right? We're going to train, right? We're going to go climb a mountain, right? So we're going to train. Well, that's what life is. We're climbing mountains every day. You have to train. I don't mean like lifting. I mean, train your mind, train your body. So meditation, reading, writing, but here's the most important thing with preparation, avoiding toxic relationships. Mm. That's the number one thing in preparation. You know, for every one person that you're around that's toxic, that equates to about five positive people in your life. 
So, you know, if you, you cut one toxic person away, that's like adding five really good people in your life. So the weight of toxicity is so, so negative and, and it's, mm-hmm. you can't see it, smell it, touch it. It's intangible. So that's part of preparation. So not only your mind, body, and soul, but you got to get rid of the crap that holds us back. And then the third one's evolution and that's evolution of self. That's, that's when the day Seth died, part of me died, yet something was born at the same time. Right. The day my wife died, part of me died. That's never coming back. Yet something was born. My mom died. Same thing. We have to look at death as a death, but it's a birth as well. Because right. if you don't look at it that way, what's it become? It becomes something negative. Right. So you, you have to, even if it's not true, nature, you have to invent something. You look at nature in and of itself and out of, out of all new life comes out of death. I mean, that's, that's the laws of nature. And, and so I think that stands to reason that that's how we look at it. I want to, I want to spend the balance of our time talking about um, living undeterred because you have a mission and you have, um, and you have some different arms of what you're doing with that. And I really want to hear about that. And I want to hear about it specifically because uh, you're coming to Billings Mm -hmm. and I want people to be able to hear hear this and hear your message and come out and support what you're doing because not very many people make a road trip through Billings, Montana. So let's take advantage of it, Jeff. Well, I'd say there's an interesting story how this went down. I, I was running on my elliptical one day and you know, I, I do like you do. I'm on all the social media platforms. I, I like posts, I share, I copy, I comment, you know, and I just kind of was feeling in a mood I wasn't doing enough. You know, I had, I had major imposter syndrome. I just like my book wasn't enough. My podcast wasn't enough. So I was running on my elliptical one day. I got off. I jumped on Twitter, which now I've deleted. Uh, I, that's all the whole story in itself. And I saw this dad riding his bike across the state that he lived in to raise money for breast cancer awareness. Well, first of all, the assumption is that something happened to him in his life that now he's passionate about something. So I got a saying that goes, purpose becomes passion when he gets personal. Here's a good example. You know, this dad, obviously, what happened was his wife got breast cancer. Now he's an advocate, which is awesome. That's what that's what we need to do. But he never would have had been an advocate if this wouldn't happen to his wife. So right. he's riding the bike across the state, raising money. So my head goes, okay, I was too small and I don't want to ride a bike. So I came up with this crazy idea that I should have, you know, I would have consulted people, they would have talked me out of it, but I didn't tell anybody because I was afraid that people would think I was insane. I drove up to Camping World the next day, presented this plan. I stayed up all night with this business the plan. The next day. The next day. The next day. Yeah, this this I is like what it. AD, this is why attention deficit is so awesome. I didn't sit around thinking the reasons why I shouldn't do this. All I could think about is why I had to do this and I'm going to make this happen. Didn't tell anybody, drove up to Camping World on a piece of paper, presented my sales idea to the manager there. They knocked off like 30% on the spot, got the RV. Camping World became our national sponsor for the tour. So I came home that night, called my friends. They're like, dude, you are an idiot. You are, do you have, you've ever been in an RV? I go, no, I've never, I've never driven an RV, never camped in one. But how else am I going to go around the country in a Yugo, you know? And, um, so then we started talking about it and getting really intentional. And then Joe, we decided on that. We're going to call this the living undeterred us tour. 
And what it is, is basically a, a mobile unit going around the country, sharing stories like you and I are doing and making this a we dialogue where, sure, I got to talk about Seth and Prudence to crack the door. But once that door is open, then I want to talk about Jill. I want to talk about the next person. And, and then in, in doing so, uh, Johan Harry says in Chasing the Scream, which is a great book, by the way, you should read on the war on drugs. Uh, and Johan Harry's a huge advocate for mental health and addiction. Um, he says that the opposite of addiction is connection. And if you yes. think about that and you write that down, you've probably heard that before. You ask an, an audience, what's the opposite of addiction? They say sobriety, you know, or, or recovery. No, it's connection. So what you and I are doing is connecting. And that's and that is, I think, the magic, the secret sauce in this whole thing is that. The tour is a connection of all these people on 95 days of going around the country. So Billings, Montana, we're coming to you guys. I think I already told you the date. Um, May 12th. May 12th. And what the plan is, Jill, so people to follow you in this area, what we're really asking is this. We're bringing the show to you. We need local support. We need people there to have these conversations so that when the spotlight is on Billings, because this will be around the whole country, we're doing live streams. We have a documentary crew. It's a lot of really exciting things. We want to put the spotlight on Billings, Montana for that day. Mm -hmm. And whatever, whatever organization, we're looking for nonprofits to be state partners. They have to provide a venue and they have to market the, this event for us. So when we come to town, I pull into Billings, we park the RV in front of whomever is going to be our partner. That whole day, our whole tour is going to be focused on that one organization. Mm -hmm. And then I want to speak for about 30 minutes. I want to bring up an advocate and I'm going to ask you to be our local advocate for Billings if, if this works out. And again, you know, it may maybe not a, a speaking engagement, but it would give you an opportunity to talk about what you do because mm -hmm. I want to bring in local people combined with an outsider that has the same mission. And then the beauty of this whole thing is the panel discussion. So what we're doing is after I speak, kind of tell my story. And after I bring in the uh, partner and a local advocate, then we do a panel discussion. And this is where I think the, we roll up the sleeves. We hand out mics to the audience. We take questions. It's going to be myself, someone from the facility. So a representative from, from the facility, hopefully a clinician, so somebody that's got a, you know, I'm just a passionate dad. I have no background in this area. I want someone with a background, someone that's got the medical professional background. And then maybe you, another advocate. And then one of my sons is offered on each stop. One of my two mm -hmm. boys is offered to, to sit on the panel. And I tell you, when you meet my two boys, you're going to say, wow, these guys, for what they've been through, losing a mom and a brother, uh, to sit there and talk about mental health and talk about their issues uh, is that's huge. Keeps me keeps me alive, Jill. I, I don't have Roman and Ian. <clears throat> I'm not. I'm not sure I'm here today without my two boys. You know. Yeah. And so what we want to do is we want to we want to turn the spotlight on Billings for a day. We want to talk about these issues. We want to come up with some solutions, and then I want to go to the next city and do this yeah. sixty do this sixty times. I mean, this is going to change my life. It's going to change everyone's lives. And then at the end, I want to put together something called after the tour. And we want to come back to all the organizations that supported us and talk about the results of our science project and cut you a check because we're going to give 50% of the money we raise on the whole tour 
My goal is a million dollars. We want to give 50% of it back to the state partners that supported us. So some of that money is going to come back to Billings, um, which I, again is, is the beauty of this whole tour is that we, we all win. There's no downside to this thing. That's great. So why get in an RV and travel around instead of uh, you've got the podcast, you've got you've got a book in process, right? Yeah, I got another book. Yep. Right. Um, So so why that why that methodology? To me, it's easy. To me, it's and again, another great question. Um, To me, it's easy. When I was talking to somebody in uh, harm reduction you know, and I just, I didn't know about harm reduction until a year ago. So this, all this is new to me. And the whole idea of harm reduction is to go where the problems are, to go where the addicts are, you know, the safe syringe uh, places, the fentanyl test strips. So what better way to go where the problems are than in an RV for 95 days driving around the United States? I mean, I'm literally going to these areas. We could do a town hall Zoom meeting in Billings, but it ain't going to be the same then our RV parked there all day with the right. local media, local advocates, meeting, hugging, crying, sharing stories. I can't, I can't replace that. That, that. That's the reason why I'm doing this is there's something, if Johan Harry says the opposite of all this is connection, then the only way I'm going to do it is to physically drive around the United States. And so that's, to me, it's an easy answer. And plus I got antsy sitting on my computer. I just, I know people <laughs> think I'm doing a lot, Jill, but I just don't think I'm doing enough. And maybe if I didn't, maybe if I hadn't lost Seth and Prudence, I probably wouldn't be doing any of this. Right. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. Right. It wouldn't have spawned this career change and major life change and life goals and, and all of that. It completely changed the tra- trajectory of your life. Totally. So the name of the book is. Uh, the name of my book. I just happen to have a copy here. It's this one's one's for you. you. Okay. An inspirational journey through addiction, death, and meaning. And it was very important for me to, um, have that second part to an inspirational journey through addiction, death, and meaning, because when you put this book down, it'll inspire you. Um, I'm an optimist, optimist by nature. Um, the book is written. I had to go into the abyss early. So the first few chapters I'm I'm, you know, on my back. I mean, it, it's bad, but it's, it gets better and, and it moves really good. I get really philosophical. The last part of the book, uh, I would suggest for your listeners and even for you, first of all, I will send you a copy, Jill. Um, thank you. Listen on the audio book because okay. I recorded it in my own voice. It took me four months because there was days I had to walk out of the studio. Yeah. I, um, I told John, the guy that I recorded this with, I said, you know, John, I want to be as authentic as I can. I don't care how long this takes, but the moment I don't have, I don't have it or, or I don't feel I have the strength, we're going to quit. And it took me four months and I yeah. probably walked out of the studio 10 times. I hadn't read the book for a year after I wrote it. And at the very end of the audiobook, my son sings a song. My youngest son, Roman, sings a song called Open Book, and it's for his brother, Seth, and he, he sings it live in the audio book. And I think if you, if you go listen to my voice on the audio book and you get to the end when he sings that song, if that doesn't move you to tears and move you to go hug your kids and call your dad and mom and, and bury the hatchet with your sibling that you're mad at, 
if that doesn't, I, then, then I don't know if there's any help for you because I can't put any more into a project than I did with the book. Right. Uh, it almost killed me personally, but I'm happy I did it. Um, and it's available on Amazon? Everywhere. Yep. Everywhere. Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. And again, we just got done about four months ago with the audio book and that's on Audible and stuff. And um, and then we're going to have the books there. I'm going to be selling the books. Great. All the profits go into my nonprofit. So one question I get is about all this money. I want to cover that quickly. So let's say I raise a million the, the, and all the book sales on the, that I sell on the whole tour going into this project. So after expenses, obviously we got to cover our expenses. Um, I'm going to cut half a check or half the proceeds are going to go to the 50 uh, or 60 state partners. So in this case, billings would be one. And then the other half goes into my nonprofit, which is called the choices network. And I, I came up with that idea because I was very key on the idea that choices precede consequences. So I don't want to be a judgmental, uh, uh, organization. I don't want to be critical of alcoholics or people fighting recovery. Right. To me, it's just choices. You you choose a lot of things in your life. Not everything. If it's a disease, then you don't have a choice. But the reality is, most of what misery we we wallow in is our own doing, and a lot of that stems from a series of functions of very poor choices. And I take my wife and my son both, and I rewind, I reverse engineer them back to when it all started. Right. And there was probably a million little choices all the way up to when they died that anywhere along the line could have been severed. But in my case, it wasn't. So I, I, somebody out there, we certainly can get to, you know, right. and help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and your website is? Yeah. So if anyone's interested in, and we need volunteers too, Jill. So when we come to Billings, uh, we need uh, local businesses to participate, to help sponsor us on the tour. Uh, the website, I have a couple of them, but the, the main one is um, www.livingundeterred.com. And then on there, you can go to the tour link and that takes you into the tour. Um, but uh, And we'll have updates and so forth uh, along the way. But uh, Great. we're super excited to come to Billings. Uh, I want to meet other Jeff Johnstons in the area that have been through this. I want to meet the kids of the Jeff Johnstons. I mean, yep. I want to just sit there and talk and hopefully somebody listening, their life can change. And if it's, you know, there's, there's almost 700, I think I told you this the other day, 700 Americans a day, Jill, a day die by overdose, suicide, and alcohol. 700. Now, you take one person, let's say Seth is one of those, and look at the ripple effect Seth had on me. It, it, it literally killed my wife, my two boys, my, my mom and dad, my neighbors, Seth's basketball co-members you know, co of his team, schoolmates, probably two, 300 people just on Seth. Now you've got 700 deaths a day. Think of the, the collateral damage. Think of the right. ripple effects. And then you have generationals, like Seth has a daughter. Uh, my granddaughter was born three weeks after Seth died. So mm. when Seth died, his daughter was born. So now Brighton, now the rest of her life is affected by this. So, and that's just one story of one family on one street in one town in one state. And, and it know. exists everywhere. Yeah. And, and that's just overdose. You got, you got all the other ones. So it's like something has to be done. 
we, we right. have to, we as in me and you and everyone else, we have to roll up our sleeves. We have to go to work and, and we got to change the, the narrative. Well, I thank you for being a part of that uh, conversation and a part of those um, those micro movements that that become major that infect and and affect people um, as as we're making decisions day to day. Like you said, it's a daily decision. Today, I'm drinking orange juice, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I appreciate your time. This has been a rich conversation, and uh, we look for. I look forward to meeting you in person. I don't often get to meet podcast guests in person. So that'll be fun. So, um, so billings, stay tuned and um, pay attention to what's going on and you will be hearing more about the undeterred tour. So thank you again. I just appreciate your time. And I am going to get you on my show and we're going to switch the roles and I'm going to interview you on the living undeterred podcast. So I'm in. I think you and I can, uh, we can talk about a lot of things in over just an hour. I think we can. (laughs) All right. Thanks again. I very much appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.